Our primary reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them siblings, saying, I tell of your name to my siblings in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God have given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the children of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his siblings in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a calendar of assigned texts for each Sunday and major religious day of the year, followed by many congregations, this text comes up on the first Sunday after Christmas. On the one hand, it makes sense. Jesus' coming into the world has just been celebrated, and we're steeped in the significance of what his coming means for us all. So a passage about salvation? Sure, logical. On the other hand, it's hard for me to reconcile a passage that seems so focused on suffering and death with the brand new celebration of a baby's birth. Or at least, it was hard for me to reconcile these two ideas until I spent the last two years trying to conceive, getting pregnant, having miscarriages, getting pregnant again, giving birth, and parenting a baby. As it turns out, for all its joy, this process has been more difficult and complicated than I could have imagined. And I have walked this journey alongside dozens of others experiencing all sorts of challenges, infertility, recurrent loss, stillbirth, fetal medical issues, preterm birth, traumatic deliveries, prenatal and postpartum anxiety and depression for the birthing parent and their partners. What we say in the fertility, pregnancy, and parenthood communities I'm a part of is, 
This journey is hard, and it's hard in a million different ways. It's true. And what I have found, to my surprise, is that this journey has brought me face to face with suffering, death, and my fear of death more than anything else I've ever experienced. It has challenged my faith in God and God's care for us, and I have witnessed it do these same things to others. The endless pain of waiting and trying and waiting for your womb to grow a life that doesn't come, the interventions that don't work, the devastating loneliness of carrying only your own heartbeat where there had been two, The constant worry about losing the new life growing inside of you. The persistent fear of something going terribly wrong during delivery. The mental health struggles postpartum, all while you're expected to just resume normal life. And then there's the utterly overwhelming reality of this profoundly vulnerable, new, tiny human being. And the million things that could happen to them, and you, suddenly so much more vulnerable too. And on top of these fears, there is the pain, the literal pain and discomfort and exhaustion. Trying to conceive pregnancy and parenthood are hardly the only entry points to human suffering and fear and death. Far from it. To be human is, on some level, to suffer and to fear and to be vulnerable. One need not have kids or even want kids to know that. But whatever naive illusion I may once have held on to that childbearing is somehow the antithesis or even antidote to the hard things has been thoroughly shattered. I now know that new life and the journey to it and through it walk hand in hand with death, suffering, and fear. And so these days, connecting this text and its discussion of the depths of human struggle with the so recently celebrated birth of Christ seems actually entirely appropriate. The whole point of God coming crashing into this world with a gasp and a baby's cry is to be with us, truly with us, not just in the good, but in the bad, in the ugly, in the hard and heartbreaking, in the challenging and profoundly vulnerable. See, God could have come into this world in any which way God chose. As any given baby, sure, perhaps one of high station, or at least one with a more stable home. But God didn't have to come as a baby at all. Omnipotent, omniscient God could have ridden into this world as a mighty warrior king as an unquestionable emblem of absolute strength and power in the ways we're taught world-saving heroes are meant to be. But God doesn't. God chooses differently. God comes into this world not powerful and mighty, not strong and valiant, but tiny and vulnerable and without a place to lay his head, to young, terrified, unmarried parents, in the company of smelly animals, in the midst of a world that from the jump seeks to destroy him. And he continues to struggle and suffer over the course of his life and certainly in his dying. 
The word that's translated as founder in our version of today's text and as pioneer in other versions does mean originator or one who begins. It's got the same root as the word beginning in John 1. In the beginning was the word. But it also holds the connotation of leader, one who others will follow into action. In this way, it has an essence of the heroic, perhaps why the King James Version translates it as captain. Then later in this same line, Jesus is referred to as being made perfect. Perfect in this sense is less about being ideal or without flaw than it is being complete. In a lot of Greek mythology, heroes are made perfect by the accomplishment of their quests. So we have these ways that Jesus is put in the company of mythic warriors and heroes and soldiers marching into battle or fighting monsters. And indeed, this passage does refer to Jesus as destroying the very embodiment of evil, that is the devil. And yet how he embodies these things is through vulnerability and struggle. In fact, the very thing that makes him complete as a savior, that ensures the perfect fulfillment of his purpose, is suffering. Of course, this idea has led to a number of theological interpretations about salvation and suffering that are at best complicated and at worst harmful. There's the idea that we should be happy about our suffering because it makes us stronger or brings us closer to God. There's the idea that God is testing us or uses our suffering for some divine purpose that will ultimately be worth it. And there's the idea that God forces Jesus to endure suffering in our place as punishment that we sinners deserve. Frankly, none of these sound very salvific to me. Nor do they seem to match the character of Jesus displayed in his ministry or the characterization of God or Jesus in this particular text. So, how could the suffering of Jesus possibly be good news for us? The answer to that how is the why. Jesus suffers because that is part of what it means to be fully human. He suffers as we suffer and is tempted in the ways that we are tempted to feel hopeless, to feel God forsaken, to turn from God, to grow bitter and hateful. He even endures death itself. And by entering into the darkest and most painful places of human existence, he the one who is God with us, ensures that there is nothing we can experience and nowhere we can go where God is not present with us. No moment when we are abandoned or alone, not even for a second, not even in death. And having entered fully into human struggle, Jesus understands, really understands, our pain, our fear, our doubt. He is not ashamed to call us siblings because he gets it. He empathizes fully. As Tom Long puts it, 
the writer of this letter is saying that when the gaze of the eternal Son of God encompasses a criminal on death row, when the glorified Son sees a homeless woman crawling into a cardboard box at night, when the Lord of all sees a man robbed of dignity and purpose by schizophrenia, when the divine heir of all things sees a mother weeping over the death of her child, or a man battling the last savage assault of cancer, or the swollen body of a child starving to death. He does not see a charity case, a pitiful victim, or a hopeless cause. He sees a brother, he sees a sister, and he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The Son of God does not wag his head at misery and cluck, there but for the grace of God go I. Instead, he says, there because the grace of God I am. It is God's grace that compels God to enter into humanity as Christ, to suffer alongside us, to die and rise with and for us. And it is that grace that saves us. This translation we read today says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a tricky word to understand. But elsewhere in scripture, it's translated as mercy and also defined as appeasement or provoking forgiveness. Essentially, Jesus' radically embodied empathy compels God's mercy and reconciliation, restoration of relationship, overrides retribution for wrongdoing. Jesus encounters the most seemingly God-forsaken depths of humanity, but for all he endures, Jesus also trusts God and returns to God, and in so doing gives us reason to trust and returns us to God's presence as well. In justification, Jesus is God coming to us in our humanity. And in sanctification, Jesus brings us back to God, restored and holy relationship. The story of Jesus is the story of a God who does not wait for we who have become lost in the tangles of our grief and pain or our brokenness and sin to find our way back but rather rushes headlong into the wilderness to find us. A God who pursues us to the heights of heaven and the depths of Sheol. A God who will not be kept from her children, who refuses to accept separation and will go to any length to reach us and bring us home, even to the ends of the earth and the farthest limits of the sea even into fleshy, bloody, terrifying human life, into fraught, endangered babyhood, into the belly of the beast of suffering and loss and pain and fear and death. Not for the sake of punishment or the glorification of suffering, but for the sake of a love that will not be denied the last and eternal word. This is good news. It's good news for the Hebrews to whom this letter was written, who were enduring active persecution because of their faith. And it's good news for anyone who has known suffering and fear and death, which is to say, 
It is good news for us all. Something that came up in the sermon discussion group this week is the idea that this passage presents perhaps the unholy trinity of ultimate human fears. Fear of evil, fear of death, and even fear of God. Of a God who cannot save or a God who will not save. A God who doesn't love or doesn't care. And Jesus liberates us from these fears and obliterates the wall that they erect between us and God's love. In the deepest, most secret, vulnerable, and broken places within us, that is where God is doing the holiest work. That is where God is whispering over and over until we finally hear and believe that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is God's most unexpected, unbelievable, and unstoppable act of absolute, radical solidarity. Solidarity always, but especially where we need it most. Yes, indeed, that is very good news. If you know me long enough, you will hear me talk about my favorite scene from the show The West Wing. And I cannot talk about the radical empathy and solidarity of Christ without giving it mention. The president's deputy chief of staff, Josh Lyman, is struggling with the ongoing psychological effects of a shooting earlier in the year. While his friends and colleagues process and move on from the traumatic event, he spirals slowly out of control. The more he struggles, the more he acts out and pushes others away. Captive to his trauma, Josh feels lost, separated from those, all those around him and the work he so cares about. Finally, his friends and colleagues and his mentor and boss, Leo in particular, intervene and force him to meet with a psychiatrist specializing in experiences like this. At the end of the episode, Josh finally confronts his own pain and fear and names it aloud. And only after he's done so can he begin to be free of it. Afterward, he finds Leo waiting for him to see how the day-long session went. Leo is no stranger to such struggles. They share an awkward moment of mutual appreciation before Leo suddenly launches into what seems like a modern take on the Good Samaritan. The story he tells is this. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. 
Jesus comes into this world to get down in the hole with us. We can take comfort and trust in Jesus because he's been there. We can follow him because he knows the way out. There is no hole too deep for him to come, be with, and for us. There is no depth too pitch black for him to find us. For as God with us, even the darkness is not dark to him. The night is as bright as day, and the darkness is as light. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join your hearts with mine in prayer?
you know, as women, we don't share enough. I've had so many friends um, that have had miscarriages and nobody wants to speak about them. So I know we're Facebook friends. And so I, I know, and I've, you know, watched you and Billy grow your family. And it's just so really, truly wonderful of you to share your story with everybody. Thank you. Now, I don't usually do this, but we have one question, okay. and it is a doozy. Okay. And thank you to the person that sent this question in, because you really, um, really articulate so well what I think a lot of us, or at least I was thinking. Um, so you get the entire time to focus on one okay. question. Intellectually, yes. I believe everything you've preached 100%. But what about when your spirit is too broken and your heart is too crushed. How can I feel it when I'm so numb I can't feel anything? Yeah. Been there. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm going to give a rambly answer because sometimes I think while I talk. So. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that this is necessarily always the most comforting answer, but, but something that has carried me um, over the years since I first heard this uh, in those moments where I feel too crushed and heartbroken to really feel God's solidarity with me um, and God's presence uh, is that this is why we believe faith happens in community, and this is why corporate worship not the businessy kind, but the collective <laughs> kind is so important. Um, and this is why, you know, we say collective prayers and we say prayers that have been said for centuries. Um, I think it's easy for those things to kind of become just wallpaper for us in our lives of faith. It's just what we do. It's the boxes we check. But the truth is that by being a part of community on the days when I show up to church and I just don't have it, I, I'm just not there. Um, I can trust that everyone around me is carrying me and believing for me, and they are showing up in solidarity with me as Christ in my life. Um, I had a period of time in my early 20s, actually right before I decided to go to seminary, which is apparently a thing that happens, um, where I felt probably the least in touch with my faith um, that I ever have in terms of I wasn't sure if I identified as Christian, I had a lot of pain and distrust of organized religion, um, and I nevertheless showed, I got involved with this Bible study for some reason while I was doubting all of this, got to know people and started going to the church where this Bible study happened, and I um, would show up every Sunday, like five or ten minutes late, because I wanted, they did passing of the peace at the beginning, and I didn't want anybody to talk to me, um, and I would leave early for the same reason, and I would just sit in the last pew, and I would just sob every week, um, because it, it was hard, and I wasn't sure if I felt it, and in some days, I was sure I didn't feel it, but there was something about being in that space, and, and being in the presence of other people who could feel it that gave me hope to keep going, and keep showing up day after day, um, and in, in, in hanging on to that thread of, of belief that I would feel it, too, eventually. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, I don't know that it's really advice, but that's kind of my experience, my testimony, I guess, of, of that. Um, yeah. And was there any one moment that you remember that somebody did something mm -hmm. 
that really touched you and helped you? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a really specific thing, and it's not, it didn't really happen in a faith context. Um, but in terms of people showing up in radical solidarity as, as, in my opinion, representatives of Christ in the world, even if that's what, not what they were trying to do. Um, when Billy and I lost our first pregnancy, um, I was very active on Twitter at the time. <laughs> and uh, I had shared our journey. And, and, you know, as you noted, it was important to me to be open about that experience um, for other people who were struggling. And as a result, um, you know, I didn't even realize what was happening. A friend asked for my mailing address, and I, you know, I didn't register. I just gave it and went about my life. And I started to get these postcards from women that I'd never met, um, just sending prayers and love. Um, and one person sent a necklace um, that had the birthstone that would have been our first child's. Um, and she didn't know me at all. She just was somebody who had been there, and she said somebody had done it for her, and it had meant the world, and so she wanted to pass it on, and I, I did the same thing for another friend after she experienced the loss. And it's just these small things that are not small at all, these little choices we get every day for how we show up for somebody. That will stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, and it was really powerful and hope-giving in a very, very hopeless time. So... That's really wonderful, and I think we can definitely take that with us, whether we're struggling or just in general, to know that those little actions really do mean a lot. Thank you so much for Thank being you. vulnerable and being here and being in the hot seat and yeah. answering our questions so wonderfully. Um, if you have any more questions or anything, feel free to text them in, and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live.